Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Kerry Stover has delivered solutions in the areas of IT strategy, large system implementation, process management, enterprise architecture development, project management, customer relationship management, and business intelligence. His industry experience includes work with high-tech manufacturing, software products, consumer products, healthcare, retail, not-for-profit, and financial services clients. He possesses a unique set of skills in the delivery and administration aspects of corporate business operations, information technology, and customer support while delivering effective business process change in the companies from small startup ventures to companies in the Fortune 500. Much of Mr. Stover's experience comes from the variety of leadership positions he's held in 20 years career as a partner with Accenture. These include serving as the lead partner for the Dallas Technology Organization, serving as executive director of product management. Prior to joining Parvita Solutions, Mr. Stover was the principal and co-owner of iThink an online markets research services firm where he led the company to a compounded annual growth in revenues of 37% and recognition in the Inc. 5000 fastest growing companies. Previously, he also served as chief information officer with Efficient Networks, a Siemens company where he was responsible for the efforts to upgrade business processes and support technologies across the supply chain of manufacturers, distributors, customers, and business partners for this $300 million manufacturer of high-speed modem and home networking products that resulted in reducing logistics by uh, 25% annually. Kerry graduated from Baylor University with a BS in mathematics with honors. He served on the boards of Needham National Outreach Ministry and Parkway Hills Baptist Church, has provided hundreds of hours of volunteer service to Trinity Christian Academy of Addison. Kerry, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, you've got a, uh, a pretty broad background and also a pretty um, large scale kind of operations you worked in. So I'm kind of looking forward to gaining, I guess, some insights as to the um, some of the leadership skills and the, um, the processes that you use that you think would um, would kind of scale across all different organizations. But why don't you tell us how you um, got involved or how you got into the role that you're in today? Uh, absolutely. When I left. Um, Accenture and then went to uh, become a CIO for uh, a Siemens company. That company wasn't a Siemens company when I went there. It got bought by Siemens. Siemens is a great company, but it wasn't exactly the experience that I had thought I was going into and doing a smaller company after leaving Accenture. Uh, So um, it turned out that it would be, um, they did not need me and I decided to go buy a company. As I was looking to buy a company with one of my ex-partners at Accenture, uh, my good friend Bruce Ballinger came to me and asked me to help start Pariveda. I'd made a commitment to buy, I think, uh, the market research services company with a friend of mine, so I could not fund, I could not be part of founding Pariveda. But Bruce, uh, Bruce and I go way back. We, uh, our, Bruce is our CEO and founder. Bruce and I met in 1981 when we started at. Arthur Anderson's consulting division and worked together on and off uh, for years. When I went to Siemens, I had him and his consulting company come in and help me. So it was a natural that he asked me to help found Pariveda. I had to say sure. no, but Bruce uh, stayed after it about a year and a half after 
um, founding party of Eddie. He was looking for his first office space, met me for lunch one day. The space next door to my company was available. He became a neighbor of mine. Uh, two years after that, he was looking for an outside director to join the company. Uh, we have an ESOP, and he wanted uh, not just an internal management team on the board, but he wanted an outsider to look out for the employee's interest in the ESOP. So he asked me to join the board of directors. And then a year after that, I realized that um, the founder who had stayed on with the company I bought was interested more um, in a smaller company, and I was interested in scale. Uh, so I realized I needed to change and called Bruce and it's like, you know, I've been dropping hints for years. So it's about time. I just walk across the hall and let's get started. So That's awesome. uh, when I joined Pariveda, he, um, Bruce is wanting to architect a company, um, a very purpose driven company and do it in a way that it, it lasts well beyond the legacy that he and I might leave. Uh, so that's an interesting part of my challenge. But Bruce is interested as CEO of the architecting of the company, and is asking me to be more of the engineer and builder on the ground of the day-to-day operations uh, of our consulting uh, company. All right. That defines the role pretty nicely. I love that he was stalking you and just kind of like moved his office beside you and kept dropping hints. Um, <laughs> Bruce plays an infinite game. <laughs> yeah, does he ever? Years ago, there was a guy who was at Queen's University in Canada, very similar to a Baylor. And um, I was trying to recruit him for a company called College Pro Painters. His name was Rich Osborne. And I pretty much every year for about 25 years, I kept saying, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. Like, I'm going to post you. I still never, I still never have, but it's become this kind of like ongoing joke. I think I'm going to be like 94 years old. I'm like, I'm still going to recruit you. <laughs> yeah. That's great. But yeah. So it's, um, it's awesome that you've done that. I think you actually touched on something that I think is core to the CEO, COO relationship. And I think it, it, it's that, that tenure and trust that you guys have built up from all of these years of being friends and having worked together and having offices beside each other. I'm sure you guys had multiple times where you went for lunch or drinks together. That is the trust a core part of why you guys are successful today, do you think? Or that relationship? Absolutely. It's absolutely uh, true. It, you know, when I first got the roles, I started getting emails from people. Um, hey, office lease is available here. Check out office lease stuff because they see me listed as COO. And they assume some things. So if you go to the source of all knowledge, Wikipedia, and what is a COO? It's, it's really definition is whatever the CEO doesn't want to do. Right. It's the delegated accountabilities from a CEO. Yep. Well, you have to, when you delegate accountabilities, you want to and should trust the individual that you do that. And the higher up in the organization uh, that you would become, that level of trust, you know, can, can if it's, a first-time relationship, it can be hard to have. But when you've worked with someone for 30 years, you know them, you know what they're like. It's fairly easy to step into the role and have that trust. We use a organizational firm called Levinson & Company to help us with some things and the way we think about our people and development. And when the um, founder and CEO was involved with us, he looked at our relationship and he said, you guys really operate you know, as two in a box, you both have to make decisions that affect the short and the long term, but you do it together. And that's the way it needs to be. Uh, you can't have a COO operating independently 
of the CEO, but you can't have one that's operating in place of the CEO either. You need them to be in sync with the CEO and the trust so that as decisions are made, both equally assume good intention and the best intentions for the firm first, not wondering why someone made a decision. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys, um, you know, as you kind of put in, you've been now doing this for 11 years and you had a lot of that, um, that early stage trust already built up. If you, if you were having to hire a second in command, if you were having to bring one into your organization, what do you think you would do to try to get that trust up quickly? The hiring process would be a big part of it. Um, I look at the hiring process as, are we in, uh, do we have a level of compatibility? Do I know this person? Do I see that person as someone who knows me? And do they want to join in that effort? So the first part is the hiring process is critical, that you treat it as you know, a relationship building exercise, not a finding someone to fill a role. Um, and that you're, you're sensitive to, if I were hiring someone to, to work in that way, I'd make certain that it was someone I wanted to be in a relationship with, not someone I wanted to do the job. Mm. And the second thing is, I'd make certain that there was frequent communications so that we could have honest conversations about how we're feeling about what each other are doing. Because trust is a feeling, and the feelings that people have can then cause them to step away and, and sense there's a diminished amount of trust or someone's acted you know, uh, without a trustful intention. And so I would want to make certain that there was a buildup of the relationship in the early stages in particular, and not just a what are you doing, but do you understand why I did it and how did you feel about it and vice versa so that we would be sharing with each other to continue to build up trust? Hmm. Like that you said that trust is a feeling and that, that kind of um, open communication. So how do you, how do you guys uh, communicate with each other now? Do you have, do you have set meetings in place? I mean, after 11 years, you, in a lot of ways you're reading each other's minds, but, but what is your, how do you guys communicate and stay on the same page? And, and how did you maybe do it in the early days too? Um, so there's, there are meetings that we both are in on a weekly basis around the, um, the executive team. And there's conversations, you know, that go on the sidelines about that where we can approach each other. Um, there are, um, conversations around the board meeting, uh, some a board member of private and that we have, but I think what we found most effective is that no, no less than once a month, we go to a long dinner together. <laughs> Um, and neither of us drink alcohol, so we're, we're, our minds are fairly facile <laughs> during that period of time, and we just talk about anything and everything that we need to to clear the air on something or to better understand uh, what's going on. And so that three hours of just mm, no pressure, no one's trying to call us, no one's trying to reach us, no one's going to interrupt us, that we can just talk about things really allows us to make certain that every no less than a month, we've set a solid foundation for the key things I'm thinking, for the key things I'm thinking. I hear his feedback. I get his perspective. He expresses things to me. I share my perspective of what it does to the business from my end of it uh, so that we can stay in sync. And then we can find little snippets of time around that just if there's something that's important for us to test along the way. But that's been a critical finding that it took us a couple of years to really realize that trying to meet in a one-on-one -on -one every two weeks for an hour and a half in the middle of a day that was likely to get canceled or someone wanted that time 
just wasn't as productive as finding just a free flowing exchange that would come out in an unpressured environment. That's really cool. Yeah, I love and I love that you've actually kind of built that in as a, a bit of a meeting rhythm as well, but it's also off site. I used to, um, when I was this, the second in command at 1 800 Got Junk, um, Brian and I would go for runs in the morning and twice a week, Tuesday and Thursday. One morning on Tuesdays, I would pick him up at his house and on Thursdays, he would pick me up at my house and we'd drive down to the beach and go for our early morning runs together. And that was kind of fun just to be able to, to go for a run. And sometimes we talked about nothing and sometimes yeah. we talked about everything, but it was also just, uh, yeah, and he was my best man at my wedding before I joined him. So it was very similar to, um, to you and Bruce that you, you just kind of knew each other and there was that just. Um, that trust was already implicit, right? Like when you, when someone's your best man, you would give them the keys to your house and bank account and my kids right away. Yes. So uh, yeah, that was pretty cool. Tell us what Paravita is just so we have some, some clarity on that. I maybe should have asked you that at the outset, but. So we are a management consulting technology strategy company uh, that does work for a range of companies from startup to the fortune 10. And uh, we are what we call fuzzy problem solvers. We are not scale. So if you want to do something around technology uh, at scale, um, it's probably an Accenture you might think to call. If you want to do something that's more commodity, you might think of an outsourcing option. Uh, but those are sort of known problems that people are going after. And what we tend to do is operate in a space where people sense they have a problem, but they're not quite sure what it is, and they certainly don't see a solution. And we do that through lifelong relationships with our clients. So our space is to solve uh, interesting problems through strategic thinking and leading edge technology uh, to give people some advantage in the marketplace to create value. And we do that across uh, 11 offices now uh, between 10 in the U.S. And we just opened up in Toronto with mostly of our work is technology development with strategy around it. And so give us an example of one, like one, one kind of project that you took on um, how, and how it unfolded. Sure. We have uh, business alliances uh, with Microsoft, AWS, et cetera. And a few years ago, uh, a couple of years ago now, we were called by our AWS representative says, hey, I've got this agribusiness company that wants to... Um, wants to work with somebody they have got a problem where they need to um, have uh, they've got a 25 hour window that it takes them to load all of the prior day's data for all of the information coming in from their products operating in the farmlands across the u.s um, and that real-time data they'd really like to have that real-time loaded but it takes 25 hours to load just a day in reverse so they can't make it work they're looking for somebody and they want to put it in the cloud. And we, we've worked with you enough to know you are unique enough to go in and help them solve this problem. And so wow. we went in and worked through and got them down to millisecond response time to getting combine data flowing in uh, through the cloud and being able to be seen by the other combines in the field. That allowed us to earn some trust. And we've been at uh, that company now for uh, the following few years helping them solve things where they're trying to move into a new space around data and information flow as a product that they sell to their current customers. And is it, is it because you can see the forest for the trees that you can kind of see some solutions that maybe they can't because they're so close to it? Or do you just have, you know, a depth of talent and, and maybe that they can't afford to have all this expertise full time? Bit of both? 
It's a bit of both. I think what we have is that we really focus on how do you learn a new technology quickly with some of our uh, leaders and how do you then determine how to make effective use of that quickly? You know, if you're a company that's innovating in technology, you're probably got it internally and you've got some R&D doing it. But if you're in the early adopter, early majority, you, you might sense there's something and you want to do it, but you don't have that history of innovating around technology. Mm. And you may not even have the history of adopting the early technology. So you don't know how to solve your problem and you're looking for someone else. And when you're an early adopter, you don't care that they have the industry skills. We didn't know anything about their business, quite frankly, when we walked sure. into the situation. They, but they have all that knowledge. They have the industry right. knowledge. They have the functional knowledge. They just don't have the technical knowledge. Yep. So we know how to use the technology, how to apply the technology, and we could bring that to bear and understand how it interacted with their business is the other part. We're not just technology for technology's sake. If it doesn't add business value, if we don't see that it's going to be a value, we're making a mistake to implement it. So we could see where the business value would be and how to get them to that as part of what we do. I love that you even understand your niche in terms of crossing the chasm. That you're not going after the innovator, that kind of early 0.4%. You're going after the next kind of 4%. And you've got that real sliver of people that want to adopt technology. But um, and what's interesting around technology right now is we, we think we're a technology kind of society, but it's still so new, you know, leveraging a lot of these solutions that are out there. Like we, you know, we've only had iPhones for 12 years, you know, so a lot of the other, mm -hmm. so you guys are, you guys are having to stay ahead of a curve that's still, it's like you're on a sailboat that's curving at the same time you're still moving. <laughs> How, do you, how yes. do you price? Like, do you, how do you price? Is it like by the hour pricing? Is it a project pricing? Do you price based on savings? Yes. <laughs> is it all of the above? Um, all, all of the above. Um, probably savings less frequent because many of our buyers um, have hand, been handed problems to solve and budgets that go with them. Mm. Um, and oftentimes that budget is independent of the savings. In other words, a CIO who is a, a good portion of our buyers, they've already been determined how much money they're going to get to spend. And someone else owns the business case for that, usually a business unit leader. Uh, so when we're in those situations, we're not quite in the position of being able to measure the value or to take a stake in seeing that the value has been created. Um, so we'll do an hourly basis for those or project based with some sort of, you know, cap and fees to make certain that there's skin in the game on both sides because uh, we want our clients to see us as being invested with them. Uh, and in a few occasions, uh, very recently, we've taken where we've had uh, C-level sponsors who are willing to um, give us, or just say, the, um, uh, the, the authority inside an organization to help them act. We've been able to move into value-based arrangements where we put our a share of our, you know, of our margin at risk um, in order to make certain that they're getting back a many fold investment on what they're getting from us. And right. hopefully that, uh, and that's worked out fairly well in the instances we've been able to do it. And is your team all full-time or do you leverage, you know, freelance experts and bring them in as need be? It is 99% full-time. The, the founding oh. of the company, um, it, the full-time is because it's, it, goes to the purpose of our business, which is to develop people to their fullest potential. And what we're looking to do is to 
leverage um, technology change as a way to have curious people learn how to affect business change because mm-hmm. technology change is going to be with us forever now. And it's been with us forever, quite frankly, and still will be. And companies want to use that to get competitive advantage. And so we have a constant supply of businesses needing help. And if we can hire very bright people and develop them, not just for their technical skills, but for their ability to understand the value that comes from applying technology, that they can be C-level advisors one day as vice presidents um, and senior vice presidents in our firm. So we have some experts that we can bring in, but CEOs don't want to talk to experts. I don't want to talk to experts because typically they're very narrow in what they know and they don't understand the implications outside of it. I want to talk to a generalist who can talk about not just the technology, but the way in which you implement change in the organization and how you need to take that into account to think about the processes that are involved in making certain that the technology works. Um, I, we can find technology experts everywhere, but can you find people who can really advise a, a CEO about how to create value and to see that value is actually created and is willing mm-hmm. to talk about that? That's what the CEO wants to hear. That's what I want to hear as the COO. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you see, you see you have 11 offices? Yes. How many, how many employees do you have? Uh, over 700. Okay. So, so you're 700 employees, 11 offices, and you mentioned the hiring and development of people so they can have those C-level conversations. Teach us how to do hiring. I mean, I think hiring is that um, the, almost the holy grail that when you get it right, um, when you hire for cultural fit and skill set, um, what do you look for? What are some of the behavioral traits you look for? Um, I think the behavioral traits we look for are, you know, and I think I'd advise any company to do this, you need to know who you are so that you hire within the proximity of who you are. You don't want to hire clones, obviously, but you want to hire people, as as you just said, that are aligned with the culture. And so um, when we went a few years ago, when we got our first, dipped our toes in the water of marketing, our leader marketing wanted to do a brand identity and understand who we are. And so we sat in a room and said, you know, who you are is what your clients say you are. So why don't we just, what do our clients tell us? And what do they say about our people? And we put all these phrases up and filled up about seven or eight whiteboards. And we looked around and said, okay, that, that's good. What is the most important thing if we were going to hire somebody? What is it that, that we would look for? And the first thing that we saw on the board was a curious learner, someone who wanted to learn and understand. Okay. Okay. That's good. What's the second thing? The second thing is that they wanted to coach. It wasn't just that they wanted to learn, but they wanted to share with others and see other people learn. And then the third thing was to say they were a giver, that they would give it their time to help people, that they would be collaborative. They would give to the community, which is important in building lifelong relationships. So between learn, coach, give, that is a, that's sort of the threshold of if you don't want to do that, that's not going to fit within our culture. So that's really cool. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, that, so you're the, I think you're the first person who's actually said the whole curious learner and that kind of self-driven 
um, learning. And it was interesting. We, we have a group called the COO Alliance, which is really the only network of its kind in the world for second in commands. And at one of our COO Alliance events, um, we were talking about my belief is that uh, to, to grow a company, you have to grow people. And the more you grow people, the more they'll scale your company. And we were talking about how to grow them, how to grow them. And one of the COOs put up their hand and said, you know, I think the best way to grow people is to hire people who want to grow hire people that are already like learning and trying to grow on their own. I was like, Whoa, that's so smart. And I'd never see, I'd never really thought of it that way that otherwise you're trying to push rope. You know, you, you, you can't, the learner yeah. controls the environment. And, but it's interesting that you guys have seen that, that you want to hire people that are curious learners and that they want to coach others and then kind of wrapping it all together in that giver component. Those are big. Those are, that's a huge, those are huge insights. Um, do you train your team on interviewing? What do you train or what do you, what do you guys focus internally on growing your people on? Do you have a set of kind of core skills at all or beliefs around people and, and leadership? Uh, well, first, our belief in people is that everybody has potential. And what we're trying to do is move people towards their fullest potential. We do try and hire um, people who have a level of um, complex problem solving capability and so we'll use cases uh, to ferret out the way in which they think and see if it's a good proximity for seeing them at work uh, and then we have behavioral interviews that are looking for the practices um, that they go through to see that they are you know they have examples of how they've behaved in that learning coaching giving mentality around you know, how do they stand up for their integrity? How do they match to our core values? Do they have that in their bag? We use the same behavioral for an intern to a vice president at, at, at some level because an intern should have had a chance to stand up at some point in their life and stand up for what's right and say that in front of a group. And if they haven't, you gotta you gotta squint now a vice president definitely has to have had a time to do that for sure. And they have to have a pretty complex time they had to deal with it. Uh, from our perspective. So behavioral interviewing is critical. With vice presidents, we recently added uh, an emotional intelligence interview. So we lifted the behavioral to another level to find out how do they care about people and deal with the people issues and what they do. Because at some level of the company, and people ask me what I do all day, it's people. Um, nothing, as you said, people are the people make a company. Uh, and um, if you don't have a company, it's hard. If you have a company and don't have people, it's really hard to have any sort of successful company. Somebody has to be there to um, make things happen with clients. And from a, from a perspective of uh, interviewing them, what we're looking for is those people that are going to be not just the learners, but the givers and the people that can communicate and speak to the solutions that they're developing their thinking. So the complex problem solving and the communication skills. We then develop people by what we call an expectations framework. So every level of the company across about 50 dimensions of performance uh, that are divided into five personas, we have at the intersection of a college hire to their professional skill of communication. Here is and let's say it's in meetings, we have a short sentence or two written in that intersection of level and capability and an expected behavior. And then every review for semi-in reviews is written not against numbers, not against how much code per, you know, per hour they produced, 
but across how they handle themselves as a professional or as a player or as a coach uh, or as an architect and problem solver. And those dimensions then lead to a progression that if they are able to meet those expectations and do those behaviors from college hire to young associate to young manager to a senior manager to a principal, then they are developing towards that ability to be a C-level advisor someday. And we give them feedback uh, every month on their progress towards it and then wrap it up in seminar reviews. Well, it sounds like by focusing on those behaviors and focusing on those traits or skills, that's where the results come from. Instead of focusing on results, you're focusing on growing people knowing the results follow. Yeah, outcomes are only the result of behaviors. And so if you have the right behaviors, the outcomes will come. I was looking to a Nick Saban uh, podcast the other day. And you know, he's, you know, someone said, you know, you were down, you know, um, you, you, you run your practices and you do certain things. What are you focused on with your team? How do you get them to focus? And he says, look, every day it's about the behaviors. If you do the right things in practice, you'll do the right things in the game. You will do the right things that will get the outcomes. The outcomes will come. If you want to throw for 400 yards in a game and you go out there thinking you're going to throw for 400 yards in a game, you may not get there because you don't behave in the right way. Your focus is the outcome. But if you go out there and take what is given and you see that you can complete short passes versus long passes and do the right behaviors, you may get to 400 yards, but you'll do it in a way that helped the team the most. So let's focus on behaviors and the outcomes will come. That's super cool. All right. What are the best, um, I guess, the best things about big businesses? Because you've worked around a lot of them and you've worked in a lot of them with the Siemens. What are the best things that come out of like the big business, the big corporate environments? And what are the, what are the kind of giant hairballs to avoid? <laughs> uh, well, the good and the bad is that big, big businesses have a level of complexity. And so that is an awesome way to develop uh, these curious learners is to work in places where they can uh, deal with uh, not just complicated problems and certainly not simple problems, but some things that are complex that you can't really determine a best answer just from a subset, but you have to go understand the full context of everything acting in the systems around it. Um, that's also the bad problem is a lot of companies have not just complexity, but they have created a level of chaos in them where they don't understand the implications of all of their different systems and therefore they work against each other and it becomes more of a political play as to who wins or loses or gets what they want rather than the system performing uh, exceedingly well. But okay. that's, the, that's the beauty of it and that's also the, the challenge uh, in certain companies. Okay. Um, how about your skill set? What would the, the the things that you're still working on today in your skills? What are you working on growing and um, getting better at? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. Bruce um, yeah, founded Private to develop people. He said he, that was the only reason he would start it when he was asked by some friends to do it. And I didn't really understand that at first, but Bruce is even looking to develop uh, me as a friend in a polite way, and he's leaning on me to develop him. One of the things that um, I didn't really understand was I looked at intelligence as, you know, sort of from a perspective, I don't know if you're familiar with the HBDI, whole brain theory of blue, green, yellow, red. Mm. Um, 
Herman, uh, there's some analysis of separating the brain into quadrants and blue green is more of the logical thinker and yellow red is more of the why and the emotions behind it. And I always wondered, you know, why do all these people who are very logical and smart do dumb things? And he introduced me to a concept around not um, uh, adult maturity around their emotional side that we brought into the company. And it was at a point where I was struggling because we had, um, we had a desire to have a common culture, but because of, we went very wide geographically early in our, in our nature to take and not have just a centralized focus around the founding office. Um, we had a lot of small offices and I was flying all over the place trying to infuse culture and to infuse knowledge and practices. And so I hired senior leaders to move into regional roles, but the offices were starting to take on a flavor of the regions mm -hmm. and regional is a, a good concept, but it wasn't what we needed at a time given that. And so it was very helpful in having some senior leaders do stuff. So there was a, a behavior change we needed to, to uh, enact, and it wasn't a bad thing for what they were doing. It just wasn't what we wanted. So um, Bruce and I agreed that the, the best thing for me to do was to try and give up my job and to delegate more. And instead of having four people who three of them had regions to take and give uh, four people one-fourth of my job, and ask them to do it across all offices so that they could see all of the offices and they could communicate about how to affect them. Interesting. But as, I, as, as we worked through that, what I learned in myself was I was taking a lot of my, my own self-satisfaction and my own self-sense of being in the role of CEO. In other words, I was faced with the best thing to do with the firm was to delegate more. And then who would I be if I wasn't, I'd been here five years. I knew everything. I knew everybody. I knew every statistic. If you needed something, sure. I could give you the answer. Yep. And that was, that itself was hurting the company. So I had to realize the best thing I could do is to step back and allow others to grow. More people to be closer to the problem and empowered to make decisions rather than having it flow through them and flow through me. So that growth was something that Bruce inspired and it continues today. I'm challenged uh, and continue to challenge myself with, am I really developing leaders who will do better than me? How do you, that's a hard thing to judge when you're yeah. thinking about the coaching that we do, but Bruce and I talk, um, our success is to build a company. We're trying to build a company and through the ESOP that is not acquired, but just continues to focus on developing people for decades beyond our departure. So our success will be if we develop the second generation of leaders to develop a third generation of leaders who run the company better than any generation before them. That's, that's hard to judge, but that's what I'm trying to do is to focus on the talent development at our senior leader level and to be that model for them. And then that causes me to question, am I doing the right things that they will then turn that, is, turn that from just instructing to teaching constantly so that they're always seeing things as a teaching moment for their future versus an instructive moment uh, about how we get through this year. That's super cool stuff. I mean, and that's such a massive leader dilemma as well as trying to kind of 
get everything off their plate. It's like, well, what am I going to do next? It's almost like you're, you're we're constantly struggling with, if I do that well, am I going to be out of a job? And you never really are, but it's it's a really it's a bit of a mind, <laughs> uh, mind fuck. And we were talking to a client that we were talking to a client, a CEO of a client, and we introduced this to the client of what was going to happen, what I was doing. Uh, as they were talking about going regions, we were talking about we were going away from regions. And so I explained it to him. And he just looks at me, so, so what are you going to do? And Bruce and I goes, probably things he's not doing today, but doesn't know he's not doing today. <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll figure that out when we get there. It's crazy. That's it. All right. What's the, uh, give us kind of the one parting tip. If you were to think back to your 21-year-old self when you were just getting started in your career, what leadership advice would you give yourself back then that you now know to be true? Listen more. Hmm. People, people, and and just ask questions. You know, I have uh, two wonderful sons. Some, my younger one might sometimes wonder, why do I want to meet this person, or why? How do I talk to this person? I don't know that. Um, you can learn from anybody, and you can listen. You can understand, and and people want to talk about what they do and who they are, and and all you have to do is ask them a question. And so I probably spent too many early years of my career trying to make a name for myself rather than trying to listen to others and understand them more. I learned that, you know, somewhere along the way, but it was sort of a key thing for me when that light switched from, you know, you're going to learn more by listening than you are by talking. That's really cool. Kerry Stover, the COO from Perivita. Thanks very much for sharing with us today on the Second Command Podcast. I really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it was great. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.